Good morning, everybody. Man, what a great way to get started with worship. Thank you so much, worship team. Gosh, you guys, you always just help get my heart prepared in such the right way. I'm so excited to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning, especially this passage that uh, Pastor Roger asked me to uh, share with you today. And we got a lot to go through, so uh, I want to just get started off right off the bat. Um, Before we look at the passage, though, this morning, I I want us to do a quick recap of Matthew up to this point. Because, you know, we started this off way back at the end of fall, beginning of winter, and with our series that this is Jesus. And um, uh, I I think that, you know, it's... It's good to just kind of stop. We've had a lot of breaks in between Christmas, Easter, and other special uh, messages. And so right now I just want to kind of get us a a quick recap through those first eight chapters. And we've seen Jesus' genealogy and ancestry and arrival in Matthew chapter 1. The visit by the wise men and the flight to Egypt and back. protecting Jesus from King Herod in chapter 2. There's the interaction with John the Baptist. In fact, even when John the Baptist baptized Jesus in chapter 3. We we came across the temptation of Jesus in chapter 4 in the first 11 verses. All of those can be summed up as the introduction of the king. And then you go on through and we start to progress through the next chapters. And that's where we're going to look at the the communications of the king. These are all the things that Jesus was communicating going forward. He began his ministry in in chapter 4, verse 12, and, and we see in verse 17 of that chapter. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then, just the next five verses, he calls his first disciples. And then he ministers to great crowds. And then we see in chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is talking to the great crowds and letting them know what it means to live right in this kingdom of heaven. It culminated in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, where we read this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Remember this verse because there's something similar in what we're going to be looking at today. Well, starting in chapter 8, As Pastor Roger's been preaching and let us know the different miracles that were taking place, we get to see the credentials. First, there was the introduction of the king. And then there was the communication from the king. Now we get to see the credentials of the king. He he showed his power over disease in chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, where we heard about how he healed the leper how he also healed the centurion's uh, um, paralyzed servant. And also we saw where he also healed Peter's mother-in-law, who was with fever. 
Jesus also, another credential is that he had power over the demonic forces. In verses 16 and 17 of chapter 8, and that's where it was talking about many were oppressed. But then also, uh, Pastor Roger was sharing with us about the, the two demon-possessed men in, in Gadara, or the Gardenines, as, as we can see that. And that was in verses 28 through 34. But then there's also Jesus' power over nature. And Roger also shared with us how Jesus could calm the wind and the sea, even though his, his disciples were panicking. And they were wondering, how could Jesus sleep through the storm? These miracles, they demonstrated various realms in which Jesus has authority, the physical realm, because he has power over sickness, the spiritual realm, because he has power over demons, and also the realm of nature, because he has the power to rebuke wind and the sea. By his words, they listen and obey. Well, this morning, uh, I want us to look at another credential that we're going to add to uh, this king. And that's the, the power, his power over sin. And that's where we're going to be at today in, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And it's where he shows that he forgives and he heals a paralytic. Now, don't be fooled into thinking that this is just another physical healing. Because, folks, it is so much more than that. Now, the healing is the result of the proof of the forgiveness that only Jesus can provide. If you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 9 and follow along with me as I read the First eight verses. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Verse 4, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But they, you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He, Jesus, then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And we see in verse 7, And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Oh, man. I love this story. I couldn't believe I was so fortunate enough to, to get this handed to me by Pastor Roger. But... Uh, you know what? At the risk of sounding heretical, 
I don't really like Matthew's version of this story. Now, before you turn off your phones or your computers or your TVs, you know, hear me out. Okay, just, just hear me out. The reason why I'm not thrilled with Matthew's version, it isn't because he writes anything wrong. But the reason is, it's too short. It's too short. It's too concise. Matthew leaves out details that Mark and Luke include and that I believe give this story the fullness or, or a depth that makes it so special. You see, Matthew placed this miracle in this place in his gospel to support the theme of gospels. Matthew writes thematically. He does not write chronologically. So if you were to study this, you would see that there's some miracles that took place at later times chronologically. But the reason why he's writing them is because he's building this theme to show the credentials of the king. It, this, this miracle is the sixth miracle that, that Matthew writes. And we're still uh, be adding three more before this chapter ends. We're not getting into those today. We're only dealing with this story. But the reason why I love the story so much goes all the way back to uh, my college days when I was at Biola University. As students, we were required to go to chapel uh, three days a week. And um, some of those chapels were good. Some of those chapels were okay. And uh, very few of them were remarkable. In fact, uh, a lot of them were forgettable, if I'm going to be honest with you. Now, that could have just been me and where I was at during that time. But um, chapels were just kind of like something that sometimes you looked at how could I get out of them instead of how could I look forward to, to going. Um, but there was one chapel. And there was a pastor who came and spoke at this chapel, and his name was Mike Slater. And uh, he shared with us, and I've never forgotten I think there's probably about three chapels that I can remember, maybe four. But this one stands out even above those during my four years at Biola. And he shared about the paralytic that Jesus healed and about stretcher bearers who brought him to Jesus. In fact, it was either right at that point or shortly after, uh, he wrote a book on stretcher bearers. It came out back in 1985. And as a struggling college student, I didn't buy the book. Um, but boy, I tell you, he made that story come alive. I was just talking with a friend uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. And when I was telling them what I was going to be preaching on, and the reason why I was so excited, and because of this chapel, she said, that's the chapel I remember. That was powerful. And I felt like, oh, yes, good. I'm not the only one who felt that way. And uh, so it was great. I mean, Mike narrated that story and talked about the what ifs 
and, and imagine how he felt or imagine what they were thinking and the action that, that people took to help their friend as well as the tension that was going on in different places within this story. He had all of us, hook, line, and sinker. It was great. And you know what? I don't remember all of his points. I just remember how he made that story come alive. He made Jesus come alive. He helped me to see people as real people, not just some characters in a story. But I do remember the, the truths that he challenged us with. So as we look at the story, I'm going to ask that you'll allow me some leeway to interject Mark's and Luke's accounts uh, as we grapple with this story. Uh, you can't see where you're at, but what I've done is I have taken Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts of the story, and I've woven them together as a harmony, harmonizing those three gospel accounts. And, and they're in different colors so that I can see the difference and, and I can follow along. And, and here's my scripture. I'm not deviating from God's word. In one hand, I feel weird without having my actual Bible in my hand with me. But I, I do have God's word right here. So you can trust me on that. Today, uh, I titled the message, Where Are You? Now, uh, hopefully, you're at home right now. Maybe you're at a family member's house watching this service, but for the most part, we should be home. So that would be an easy question if I were to ask you that, your proximity or your location of, at this current point. But the reason why I titled this is because I, I want to challenge you with where are you in this story? See if maybe you can identify with some of the characters and see who you most relate to. And guess what? Um, quick little thing, no, you cannot choose Jesus, okay? So one of the few times you can hear a pastor say, you cannot choose Jesus. You can't. Um, though some of you I know right now are already trying to fight me on that one and say, oh yeah, I can, but hey, that's okay. I'm not going to say the words or the names of the people that I'm thinking of thinking that, but you know who you are. But here's what I want to do. I want to look at the different characters in this story and then just try to highlight some characteristics of, of what's going on, who they are. So the first characters are the Pharisees and the scribes, or the teachers of the law. That's a, another description of the scribes. And that's found in, in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, Matthew chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, and then Mark chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. I'm not going to expect you to write those things down. I, I'm just hoping that I'm going to whet your appetite to go and kind of do what I've done and read all three of those stories and then see how they all fit together. You see, the, the Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law, these scribes, they were there to keep tabs on Jesus in this story. We see in Luke's account that um, um, some of them had come from every village, Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
See, news of what Jesus was teaching was spreading rapidly. And these Pharisees and the scribes, who were kind of like lawyers of the law, they, they were like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And so they were sending like a delegation of people to go, and, and whenever they heard where Jesus was going to be teaching, we know he is teaching in his hometown, Capernaum, because we find that in the story. And, and so they were there to hear, okay, what is he teaching? As if, well, wait a minute, we'll, we'll, we'll tell you if you're right or not. And most likely, they were prepared to tell him how wrong he was. Because they had already been getting word that he was teaching about things that were, were turning the tables upside down, literally, in, in the religious elite world. He was making them uncomfortable because all of a sudden he was teaching uh, the people about things that the, the religious leaders were like, no, 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 no. Let's just stick straight to the law. And Jesus was changing that. He was talking about how to love other people, not just continue on in some ritualistic living that somehow makes you right. He was talking about loving God. And remember in, in chapter 4, verse 17, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so they wanted to refute this man who was teaching, remember when we saw at the end of chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, as one who had authority? You see, the scribes didn't have authority. They just talked about what other teachers were saying, and they would report that. They would take what someone else's interpretation of something was, and they would share that. But they did not teach with authority. They were just repeating what other people were saying. And here's Jesus not teaching what others are saying, but he's teaching with authority. And that made the scribes and Pharisees definitely uncomfortable. They were also there to make sure that uh, everyone was keeping in line with the Jewish law and making sure that no one would be stepping out of line with the religious structure that had been established and continuing, however corrupt it had become. Now in this story, we see that the, the scribes... Uh, the, and, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Oh man, what's blasphemy? Well, in the New Testament, it can have a broad meaning. So on one hand, it could mean to say something that dishonored God. If you were to say something that dishonored God, that could be blasphemous. But it could also involve claims to divine prerogatives claiming to have something that only God could give or only God has. It's a right or privilege exclusive to a particular person or class. And you know, in this case, in this story, the blasphemy that the scribes are accusing Jesus of all comes down to the fact to forgive sins on God's behalf. Man, they, they were messed up. 
I mean, that threw them for a loop. It, it, it didn't take anything subtle. Jesus flat out, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Boom, blasphemy. And you know, what's interesting in these, in, in, in these three accounts is they weren't yelling it or saying it. It just says they were thinking it. They were perceiving it in their hearts and in their minds. And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? The other gospel accounts say, why do you question these things in your hearts? You see, Jesus knew right off the bat that, yep, these guys, they don't get it. They don't get me. They don't understand that I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I am the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for. And here were these experts of the law, and they didn't even see it. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, I, I want to go on. We're going to move on from those guys. I want us to see another main character is the crowd. I know, it, it seems so generic. But in Mark chapter 2, you, you hear about them in verse 2 and verse 4, the first part of it, and, and also in, in verse 12. And in Luke chapter 5, you hear about them in verse 19 and in verse 26. And then in Matthew, they are only mentioned at the very end in verse 8. Now, this crowd, they were just hoping to see something special or amazing. I mean, they had heard stories about Jesus and what he had done, and that is why the house that this event took place at, it was so crowded. Because, man, those stories spread. Wait, what? Someone got healed? Who, who got what? Jesus? Well, he's in, he's in Capernaum now? Where? I want to go. I want to go here. I want to go see. Is he going to do something else really special? I mean, just imagine what they were thinking. Think there would be an excitement. Some of them might have even come to be healed. But none of the gospel stories say anything about that except for the paralytic. In all those instances, particularly at the conclusion of all of these uh, uh, Gospels, it says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. The other writers uh, use the word amazed or an amazement. They were in awe. So this is the crowds because they had just seen something they hadn't seen before. And you know what's really cool is it also says they glorified God. In all three counts, they glorified God. Now, some of them might have come to be taught by Jesus. We don't know. But we also don't know if any of them came to Jesus. Because at the end, it just said, uh, 
they glorified God who had given such authority to men, meaning Jesus as just a man. They didn't recognize that Jesus was the Son of Man, a term that he called himself here, a term that he called himself over 80 times throughout in the Gospels. They just recognized him, wow, this guy does some incredible things. And they glorified God, but they still missed Jesus. In, in Luke's gospel, he says that they, we have seen extraordinary things today. But there's no description of if anybody came to Jesus. At least not yet. The third characters in this story are the four men. Now, these guys aren't given names, but boy, you know they're in the hall of fame for men of faith. And even though their names aren't recorded, boy, their faith sure is. They were most likely friends of this paralytic who also... We aren't given his name. They had faith that Jesus could heal their friend. And not only that, but they took action to bring their friend to Jesus. I'm going to read to you uh, the accounts of Mark and Luke. Mark chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and Luke chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. So in Mark... He, said, he writes this, And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, Matthew just wrote this, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. See why I told you earlier? He's leaving out details. He's leaving out some things that just help you engage more with the story. And it says, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, meaning above where Jesus was teaching in the house. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. We're starting to get more detail. We're starting to understand better who these four men were. These guys who didn't just care enough about their friend to say, hey, you know what? We're taking you to Jesus. And commentators tell us that, that most likely he was a quadriplegic. And when they use the bed, it's not what we think of. It's not this big, cumbersome piece of furniture. It's more like a mat, even more like a stretcher. Okay? It could have been a stretcher made of rope. It could have been, been a stretcher made of wood. But it would just have this light padding on it. And this man could not move. But these friends were determined, determined to get him to Jesus. Follow with me as I read Luke. Luke chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Luke writes this, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. That was their goal. That was their hope. But look what happens. But finding no way to bring him in, why? Because it was so crowded. Because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. Now, to understand this, homes, a typical home, um, would just, you know, 
have, have your bottom floor, and then there'd be a roof put on top. And when the roof is on top, that's where people would then go like to, with the heat to kind of go up there to kind of cool off. And they'd still put another shelter kind of above them or whatever. And, and so it could be used for a variety of things. Okay? And, and there would be stairs up there. Now, I don't think of stairs like in our homes. Stairs, you know, much smaller because the roofs weren't that high. Okay? And, and so you just kind of go up on the stairs so you get on your roof. So they did that. And it says, and they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. So not only was the roof, but it could have been either thatch or just mud with some straw or some, some pieces of wood to just kind of help it all together. And they would have smoothed it out. But also they, they could have made tiles. It could have been clay tiles. Well, they just made them separate, and then you kind of put them on up there and just kind of helps with the, from water leaking. I, I mean, you know, they just had it up there. And so we see Matthew doesn't talk about any of this. But Mark talks about how they, they removed the roof above him, meaning they did something to cut in through this roof. Can you imagine that? I mean, these guys were determined, but it's not determined because they wanted to, to get something done. They were determined because they loved their friend, because they knew that Jesus is the only one who could fix him, who could bring healing. These guys were not going to let a crowd of people who were there for a variety of reasons, but they weren't going to let that crowd deter them from getting their friend in front of Jesus. And so, here we go. Luke adds that, yeah, not only did they cut through the roof, man, they got rid of the tile on the roof. Can you imagine, I mean, come on. Can you imagine for a moment, if, if all of a sudden you're Jesus teaching, you're a bunch of people in there, or maybe you're the owner of the house, and you start seeing some, some dust coming down from the roof, and all of a sudden, you're kind of like, what's, what, what's going on? And, and, then, and then you see either some tools or some hands coming and, and pulling stuff away, and there's a hole in your roof, and you're kind of like trying to pay attention to Jesus, but you're like, what? Uh. And you know Jesus noticed, and it's not just some kind of little hole. I mean, it was big enough to get their friend through. Wow, that story just in and of itself, the tenacity of those guys to do whatever it takes for their friend to be seen by Jesus. They didn't let the crowd stop them. They didn't let a roof stop them. They didn't let embarrassment or ridicule stop them. They didn't let repercussions, maybe relationships, relational repercussions or financial. If you're the owner of the house, I mean, if, if that was happening today, I guarantee you would be like, hey, um, you're paying for my roof here, buddy. They weren't thinking about any of those things. They were just thinking about how do we get our friend 
to Jesus. They were committed to doing whatever it took to get their friend in front of the one who could heal. Don't you wish, I wish, we all had friends like that. But next I want to transition. Now I want to look at, let's look at the paralytic. And uh, you know what? You got to believe he's hoping to be healed. I mean, he's hoping. Maybe he's heard Jesus has healed others. Maybe, just maybe he'll heal me. You got to think that there's a longing we don't know how long he'd been paralyzed. We don't know if he'd been paralyzed since birth. We don't know if he'd been paralyzed because maybe he, he tried to do something that he thought was fun and it backfired on him and boom. We don't know. We just know he is paralyzed. We don't know if he asked his friends to do this or if his friend said, hey, guess what? We're taking a road trip. We don't know. Did they tell him they were doing this or that he had to just go along? You know what, though? We do know this, that he had faith that Jesus could heal him if he wanted to. We know that. Because when we look back in, in this passage and, and we look at Jesus' response in Matthew chapter 2, the second part in, in chapter 2, or in chapter 9, verse 2, part B, Matthew writes this, And when Jesus saw their faith, their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. All three gospel accounts. And when Jesus saw their faith, not just the four friends and not just the paralytic. It was all of them. He saw their faith. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. The paralytic got something more than he probably even hoped for. I don't know, maybe, maybe there was that longing for that too, but his sins were forgiven. He's hoping that his body will be healed. And he had no idea that Jesus put a higher priority on his heart being healed. You know, in the Old Testament, disease and death were viewed as the consequences of man's sinful condition. And healing was predicated on God's forgiveness. Now, if you're taking notes, uh, write these verses down, and you can look them up later on. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, we see, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. David writes this in Psalm 41, verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, 
for I have sinned against you. He also writes later on in another Psalm 103, these words in verses 2 and 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? You know, that's why in, in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, we, we read these words. John 9, 1 through 3. Here's, a, here's a, something that kind of speaks to almost maybe what the mindset was of this day. And as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, that, that's, that's where the thinking was. And Jesus answered in verse 3, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The paralytic paralytic in all likelihood lived with a burden of guilt and shame so heavy that it was probably emotionally worse than his physical situation. Do you, do you know what I love about this guy? It's right here. Luke chapter 5, verse 25. And immediately he, the paralytic, rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. He simply obeyed Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, this is what happens. Jesus tells him, so that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, Pick up your bed and go home. He gives him three commands, three things to follow through on. And he obeyed. And everything and more than he had started the day off hoping for came to fruition. That's incredible. That's what happens with obedience. You know, finally, we come to Jesus because he's everywhere in this story. You can't get away from him. And uh, he was moved by uh, the friends and the paralytic's actions we see in, in verse 2. And he showed compassion and tenderness when he says he saw their faith. And then he reaches out and he speaks to the paralytic and even though we don't know his name, and we only know him because he was paralyzed at the time, he calls him son. A term of endearment. Jesus prioritized this paralyzed man's spiritual condition over his physical condition. Not many others were thinking like that. But that's what a Messiah, the true Messiah, that's what the king does. He thinks of the heart issues above all else. Jesus further established his authority as the messianic king by forgiving sins. He challenged the religious leaders. 
He said, which is easier in verse 5, to forgive sins or to heal? Now, just so you'll know, um, there's the thinking that, oh, well, to forgive sins, that's the easier thing. You know why that thought was? Because you can't prove it. If someone were to say, hey, I forgive you your sins, how do you prove that? So that was easier to say. But the more difficult thing was to show it. And so that's why in verse 6, Jesus proved his authority. I love this interaction. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. He's talking to the scribes, to those religious leaders. Has authority on earth. Why? Because the King has come to earth. The Son of Man has come on earth, and He has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then it says, He then said to the paralytic, He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and then He says, boom! He turns to the paralytic and He says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And you know what's really fascinating about this? Is this is the one verse that is almost word for word in all three translations. Now these are three different authors. But this one verse, Matthew 6 and Mark verse 10 and in Luke verse 24, they are almost word for word verbatim. The same exact thing. Jesus gets done addressing those religious leaders who were smug, who thought, oh, we got him. He's blaspheming. And he turns right around and tells him, rise Pick up your mat and go home. And that's what happened. That's how Jesus proved that actually the greater thing, the harder thing, was actually forgiving sins. And he proved that by healing this paralytic, he had the authority to forgive sins sin as well. This story, we saw three different groups of people. We saw the scribes and the Pharisees. We saw the crowds. We just know there was a lot of them. And we saw four stretcher bearers. Four friends that you and I would love to have that we need to have. And we also saw two very special individuals. We saw a paralytic who with simple faith said, okay, guys, if you, if, if you don't mind taking me, yeah, let's, I, let's go meet Jesus. And we saw the Son of Man. And I've told you, you can't choose Jesus. But I've got to ask you, where do you see yourself in this story? Who do you most identify with right now? Where are you in this story? 
And if you're not somebody who is seeking to be in the presence of Jesus, it's not too late. You just be right there. He doesn't care if you have to cut a hole through a roof or drive a car through uh, the wall. He's waiting. The Pharisees and scribes only looked out for themselves. The crowd was amazed and even glorified God, but they didn't recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah who came to take away the sins of the world. The four friends, they saw Jesus for who he really was, and they believed that he could help their friend. And the paralytic, he had his body healed, but more importantly, his heart was healed. No matter what's going on in your life, and I know this is so difficult, some of you are completely alone. Some of you, um, you're just struggling physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. You feel abandoned by people. You feel abandoned by God. You're doubting. You're questioning. I know this is a hard time. But I want you to know that Jesus is waiting. And he's willing to bring healing to any area that you need. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for this story. And even though, Lord, I want to be um, one of the stretcher bearers, friends, or I even want to be the paralytic, Lord, there's times I catch myself being the crowd I even catch myself being one of the religious leaders. And I forget that it's about engaging with you. And I forget it's about a relationship with you. I lose my focus. I lose my perspective. So Lord, I I just want to pray for those who are struggling and pray that you can encourage them and remind them that you are always waiting to heal broken hearts, broken bodies, broken minds, and that you love nothing more than when your children come to you and repent and confess and accept the free gift that you have so richly given. Father, thank you. And Jesus, thank you. And Holy Spirit, thank you for being alive. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.